Welcome back to the I Need a Title podcast. For today's episode, episode 16, I spoke with a gentleman who wears many hats around the college. He's a faculty developer, he's an English professor, he's a mentor, and he's just an all-around cool guy. I'm talking about Matt Clauza. I think you all know him pretty well, so let's dive right into the conversation. Welcome, Mr. Matt. It's very nice to see you again. It's good to see you. It's it's nice to see people from work. Are you wearing a Boston hat or a Detroit hat? I can't tell from that Oh, Detroit, Detroit. Please don't say Boston. Sorry. (laughs) Are you from Detroit? Yeah, Detroit Tigers. Yes, yeah. Southeastern Michigan, metro Detroit area. Mm -hmm. Okay, well... Sorry, spent a lot of oh, spent a lot of time down at the uh, the old Tiger Stadium as a kid. We could leave our house and driveway to driveway, be at the ballpark in fifteen minutes. So, wow. All right. Well, I, I guess I'll start with that since you mentioned that. Uh, tell me about yourself. the The only thing I do know is something that came up in the NFE sessions three years ago, where you mentioned that you had tools that you could lend me to take apart the tile floors in the apartment I had just purchased. Oh, okay. So yeah. presumably you <laughs> took apart your own tile and, and installed new flooring. So at some point of time, I'd love for you to talk about that experience because it, it seems that I've trauma bonded <laughs> over renovations with many people. So the floor is yours. Tell me sure. anything you wish to about yourself and uh, I'll, I'll chime in with any questions that pop into my head. Okay. Um, originally from Metro Detroit area, uh, moved around a lot as a kid, lived in Port St. Lucie, Florida for a while, lived in Delaware for a while, ended up back in southeastern Michigan. Um, came from um, low income. Um, I was a Pell student. I was first time in college. It was first time generation or first generation. I uh, uh, put myself through college by working construction, hence the, the background there. and. Um, took uh, evening classes and, and Saturday classes or on times when my education classes only met Tuesday, Thursday, I had a wonderful foreman that would allow me to either leave work and go to class or go to class and then come to work. Or if I needed the whole day off, he, he was wonderfully supportive and would let me work Saturdays or Sundays to, to make up hours because, you know, I needed to eat and, <laughs> and that kind of thing. But, um, but that and that's kind of where where I had uh, where I learned to where I learned construction, and so I I call it the the advantage of being poor <laughs> growing up. So if our washing machine broke, you know, we would go to the library and get a book on washing machines and read through it and learn how to fix it because you know buying a new one wasn't an option. And and the same thing with cars, you know rebuilding carburetors or whatever, you know, doing brakes on the car and things like that. I still do my own brakes on my car and, and that kind of thing. So, um, and that, you know, so I, I came from that kind of uh, working class background. My father was a steel worker in, um, in, uh, Michigan there, right on the Rouge river in Detroit. And until the steel industry of course left the U S or most of it did. And, and, um, you know, it, it coincided about with his retirement anyway, so that worked out. But my stepfather worked for Ford Motor Company, so we we are very much Motor City kind of people. <laughs> <clears throat> um, and then what else can I tell you? 
Um, so I guess working construction uh, and then going and taking classes in the evening, one of the things I, I like, and I share this with my students as well, is that I understand their plight. I know what it means to work, you know, 40, 50 hour weeks and still have to to go to class and, and that kind of thing. Um, but then one of the things I, it was a hard culture shift for me to go from wearing like jeans and construction boots to, you know, khakis, you know, teaching in, in, <laughs> in a collar shirt and things like that. You know, actually at the time when I got my first teaching job, I didn't own a collar shirt. I had to go and, and buy one, you know, and, and so it was a completely foreign world for me. Uh, professionalism, as you, as you probably know, <laughs> I'm not sure I've ever arrived at <laughs> professional status, but, but it's, uh, you know, it, it's entirely foreign world for me. How was that transition for you? Because I, I have a lot of students in my courses, as we do we all, who are first time in college, and I don't know how to relate with them at on, on that level or on that note, because both my parents attended college, they have multiple graduate degrees between them. So for for me growing up and for my sister growing up, we didn't know that anything else was an option. We didn't know that there were options to uh, to life outside of, well, you could go to college or you could do this. That We didn't grow up knowing that there was something else that could be done. Uh, and, and that sometimes can, can be difficult for me to understand, the, the, not necessarily the plight of the, of the situation, or the plight of the student that has to work 40 hours a week and take care of parents and take care of children. I've gotten better at, at not tuning that part out, uh, in part, thanks to the NFE. Um, but how, I, I don't know how to help those students or where to start because the, the chasm is, is so wide of what I know as axiomatic that you have to go to college. What do you mean you're not going to do that? Well, versus no one in my family has gone to college, so I don't even know how to study or I don't know how to college. Mm -hmm. So w was that something you had to struggle with when you were younger or when you were going to college the first time? Oh, or yeah, absolutely. How did you navigate I, that? I started out at the University of Michigan as an architecture major. And it was entirely a foreign world to me. So as a commuter student, you know, at a very largely residential university, and, um, you know, for me, it was things like, what, what the hell's a registrar? Why do I need to go there? You know, that's a long word, you know, that that kind of thing. I mean, I, I, was, I was always, always tried to be a very good student. I graduated near the top of my class, not at the top of my class, but near the top of my class. But I... Um, but I got to college, and and again, it's an entirely different world. And um, and do you remember to be... specifically how you navigated that world, or how you navigated that change? For instance, if you don't know what the registrar's office does, or what it's there for, or why do you need to go there? Mm -hmm. how, if no one told me that, or if I, I know next to nothing about construction or, or you know fixing cars, let's say, if someone said you know go do this. If I don't know what this means or where to find it or what the use is or what the function is, I, I would have to ask someone else. So is that what you did? Did you reach out for help? I did. I reached out for help. And I think um, I, I, 
I don't know if it was smart enough or dumb enough, but I would ask lots of questions. Mm -hmm. And I kind of got over the fear of asking a dumb question. And, you know, if, 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 and many times it was a dumb question to a lot of people, a lot of my classmates, but, you know, at the same time, I, it, it was information I needed to know. Um, but like many of us, I, I had a professor who reached out to me. He was actually a graduate student. He was my composition professor. Um, and I just started talking with him because we had to meet with him to review our papers. And, and when he found out that I was kind of this clueless, he was like, well, here, let's, let's pause on your paper and let me explain a few things, <laughs> you know, and that kind of thing. So, um, you know, without him, and, you know, I, I don't know that I would have been able to na navigate a few things, but a lot of it was I'm going to go wait in line at the registrar's office. And, you know, at, at, at the time, this is back in, you know, the mid 90s, University of Michigan. Um, back, I, I make it sound like I'm an old man, but <laughs> I feel like an old man. But, you know, but at the time we didn't they didn't have the kind of um kind of in your face, let me help you succeed, you know, that colleges do now, you know? And so, you know, many times I would wait for 45 minutes in a line at a given office only to find out I'm at the wrong office and I have to go somewhere else. And, and, you know, and, it, and it's frustrating, you know, but it's, um, I think it was just perseverance that I, I kept doing. You know, ultimately, I left University of Michigan. I went down the street to Eastern Michigan University, which is literally down the hill from from there. It's you know, I don't even think it's ten miles apart. Um, but Eastern Michigan University's uh, education program is is was much stronger, or still is mm -hmm. much stronger. And at one time, I don't know if it's true now, but at one time they produced more teachers per year than any other college, at least in the Eastern United States, east of the Mississippi. So wow. Um, very good school, um, much more um, middle class students. It's not to say there's not students on either side of that as well, but um, students I could relate to, you know, for a lot of working students, more commuting students, that kind of thing. Because it was hard for me to fit in, you know, w when I work a 10 hour day of construction and I'm exhausted and I go to class and I'm hungry, but I'm poor. So, you know, I, my diet was pretty much ramen and, you know, I go to class and then I have to listen to the student next to me complaining that like Starbucks didn't get their order right, you know? And so it's, it's, it, it's a different world. It really was a different world for, for me. I'm not saying that still, you know, that that's still the case, you know, things certainly have shifted. Michigan is still a wonderful school, but it wasn't the right school for me. And so um, I really did find, you know, kind of my heart at, at Eastern Michigan University and, and was able to, uh, to pursue teaching there. All right. So what, what <clears throat> brings you or brought you from Detroit down to Florida? You mentioned Port St. Lucie. How, how did that yeah. transition occur? So my, my stepdad retired. So I'm, I'm a, I'm the, I'm the baby of the family. I'm the very last. Um, my mom referred to me as a surprise. My dad referred to me as <laughs> an unfortunate accident. I, don't know. I, I, I think there's probably truth to both of those, uh, more likely the latter. But, um, so at the time I was, um, you know, I was living with my mother, my stepfather, he had just retired. He was married twice before then, you know, it was my mom's second marriage. So, you know, my, my stepfather was of retirement age, you know, my mother wasn't, you know, like I said, she had me when, when she was much older. And so, um, they retired to Florida and my, my grandparents on my stepfather's side lived in Port St. Lucie. 
And so it was kind of a natural move down, you know, if you're going to retire and go to Florida, you know, let's go move near family. You know, my aunt and uncle live down here as well. And so that's what brought me down, down here. But because of rezoning, um, you know, I went, I went to a number of different, I went to six different schools in seven years between rezoning. Um, at the time it was White City Elementary and then I got rezoned to Port St. Lucie Elementary and then Port St. Lucie Middle School. And then, um, and then that's when the move to Delaware happened. So, you know, listening to some of your other podcasts, I know that's not quite as many, many moves as some of the other people you've, you've, um, done, but, um, but again, I try to look at, you know, those challenges and see, um, you know, maybe where, where did I develop some kind of strength or skills or something like that? So moving around and, you know, literally every year meeting new friends or trying to make new friends, you know, I think that that helped me develop maybe some, I'd like to think I have some skills in, in getting along with people or talking with people or taking an interest in people. So, um, you know, and so if you fast forward, maybe that's what helps me talk with, with colleagues or something like that. And then um, my stepbrother, <laughs> this, and I, I could draw you a family tree, but there's not enough room on the wall behind me <laughs> to to fit it all in. But my stepbrother um, and his wife had uh, twin boys that were uh, both had cerebral palsy, and both of them worked um, uh, full time. He was he was a master sergeant in the Air Force at Dover Air Force Base in Delaware, um, and his wife was a very very um, high ranking. Uh, 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 almost the CEO of a a company that makes dental tools. Mm -hmm. And so neither of them were in a position where they could quit work. And so that's when my mom and stepdad said, well, let's move up to Delaware and we can help take care of the boys. And so that's what my parents did is cared for the, the, the twins while they worked and, you know, during the day and things like that. But that was yet again, another move. And, <laughs> and, and Delaware lives up to everything that you've heard of Delaware, which is probably nothing. And, and that's, that's about what it was. So, <laughs> Do you have a preference of, you know, assuming everything else works out, do you have a preference of the three places where you lived, Michigan, Delaware, Florida, where you would like to, to live long term, I I love I love Florida uh, for the sunshine and for the the beaches. Mm-hmm. Um, Michigan is um, it, especially northern Michigan is is kind of wilderness. You know, our family vacation every year was going north and doing a canoeing trip up in in northern Michigan. You know, camping and canoeing, um, and that you know my heart kind of rests in the in the woods there. You know, so so the problem with Michigan is because of the lakes there and the lake effect um, there that it's cloudy for, for much of the year. Sure. And so the, uh, the, the clouds, you know, it, it's, you know, between October and, and April, and I don't know the statistics on it, but there's, you know, there's very few days of sunshine because it's, you know, all day clouds and things like that. So I love the sunshine down here. So I think long-term, you know, I'd love to stay down here, but vacation or, spend some summers or something like that up in, up in Michigan. Yeah. But we lived there. Um, I think I told you I changed my major to, to education. Um, and that came about because, um, I was in my spare time. Now, one of my passions was, um, 
um, cross country and track and field. And you, of course, can't tell it by looking at me now, but I was a very, very avid runner um, before and in, in, in even uh, during and after college. But um, um, I was c- helping a friend of mine coach the cross country team of the school that we graduated from. And I found that really just my passion was working with those kids. I can call them kids now. At the time, they were only three or four years younger than me. But, you know, um, but but that was my I really enjoyed working with them. Um, And then, you know, so so that seemed like a very nice fit for me would be education. And at the same time, I was kind of became disillusioned with architecture because what I thought of it as what I thought it was was a. Uh, you know, the artistic, the design, the, the, you know, making an impact on the, the landscape of cities and that kind of thing. And the way it was being taught to me was how can you design your product as cheap as possible so that you get the sale, you know, and somebody buys, buys your pr- blueprints instead of someone else's and, and I'm not a salesman and, and that really wasn't, wasn't what I wanted to, uh, to pursue. So kind of coincided with that. <clears throat> I, I'm, I'm, there was a question that I was going to ask towards the end, but I, I, now it feels like the right time to do it. Um, if you wouldn't mind setting aside the rules of modesty for a <laughs> bit, uh, why do you think in your opinion, uh, so many of the people that I've interviewed so far, I, I usually ask people for, hey, give me a, a couple of names of people that you would like to listen from or, or hear from. Um, and almost across the board, your name appeared in, in some sort of top three version. You know, so I, 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 it's been wonderful that it's not just the same three people because I, I, you know, okay, I want to interview these people anyways. But if you could set aside that, that shroud of decency uh, or, or modesty that, that most people would have. Uh, why do you think in your estimation, so many people would want to listen to you talk about yourself? <laughs> I, I have no idea. <laughs> I, 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 I don't. Well, um, modesty is, is something that that's been ingrained and 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 to to some degree you know physically mentally um beaten into me um you know as a, a victim of of uh, child abuse and so we were not allowed to be to be uh braggarts or anything like that mm-hmm. and so as a matter of literal safety you know we didn't i come from a very strong polish family and and you know you don't you don't brag about yourself so so for for me to answer that question understand it makes me very uncomfortable because you know i i have to go beyond kind of the the fibers of myself to to answer that but um <clears throat> i I, you know, I'm a Midwesterner. I know that, you know, in another podcast, you know, Tracy Ciucci had talked about being from the Midwest. Um, and in the Midwest, we care for other people and we set aside our, our, um, um, needs, so to speak for, for others. And, and that's what I try to do. 
Um, you know, there's been a number of times where if another one of our colleagues or something like that needs something, I'll stop what I'm doing to go help them. But that means I'm working till midnight that night, you know, and I don't mind doing that. That's, it's just auto, almost automatic. And I don't know if that comes from being a Midwesterner, if that comes from, you know, living in a relatively, I don't want to say poor community, but lo- definitely low, low income. I don't know if there's a difference of <laughs> between those sure. two, but, um, you know, where we, where we helped one another out, but it's, um, I, I, I just, I think that that might be where it's, where it's coming from. And then the other side of it is I'm just fascinated by people. I'm fascinated. You know, I've loved this podcast, you know, I'm a subscriber and, you know, last night when my phone, you know, ding and I look and I, Oh, there's a new episode, you know, I stop what I'm doing so I can, so I can listen to it. And so, um, I'm just fascinated by people and their stories and and things like that. And so, um, you know, I'm so grateful that, that, you know, you're putting this together, but, but I, I, maybe the combination of those two, I I don't know. I'm curious what other people would say, you know, as, as to why, why my name ended up on that list. So, you know, I don't know, maybe it's like, I don't know, that guy's an ass. I'd like to know more about why he's such an ass. (laughs) I I, I very strongly doubt that that's the case, but. And, and, you know, a funny, funny story about that. When I graduated um, um, undergrad, I graduated with honors And so many of my friends, you know, so at the graduation ceremony, they had all the, you know, the honor students, or if you graduated, you know, cum laude or, or whatever, please stand up. And so I did. And then afterwards, so many of my friends were like, that's hilarious that you stood up. Right. And I'm like, why, why is that hilarious? And then they honestly didn't know, like, like we didn't know you were smart. You know, that kind of thing. And I don't know that I'm smart, but I just made sure I did my homework and made sure I, you know, read the text and that kind of thing. But, um, you know, I I don't know, you know, I don't don't know if that's a good thing about me or a bad thing about me. But it's, you know, I had fun when when I could have fun and, you know, was serious when when I was serious. But, um, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. You know, it's, it's, it almost feels like a, um, um, this is going to be a horrible way to say it. So, so feel free to edit this out if you need to, but it's almost a, a, a schizophrenia about my, my role because people don't, like, like I, I'm, you know, my background is construction. I still swear. You know, but in the professional setting, I don't or very rarely or I try not to, you know. So, you know, there was some colleagues at the time um, last it was just last year when, you know, me and a couple other colleagues were talking and, and something really upset me. And and I said, you know, yeah, screw that. Although I didn't say screw, you know, and um and their jaws just dropped and they were like, you swear. And I was like, Wait, <laughs> what are you talking about? You know, so it's almost this weird, you know, I, I, I don't know. And it, and it, it bothers me sometimes. Cause I don't know, like, am I showing the real Matt when I'm professional or, it, you know, if I sometimes betrayed the old Matt, have I morphed over time? You know, I, I don't know. These are some, some pretty deep questions for this early in the morning, but, <laughs> but I, you know, it's, it's trying to figure out who I am. And, and that's why I think it would help to know why they, why they put my name down is because then I'd like to know who they think I am or who they wanted to hear from, which Matt they wanted to hear from. So, well, let's tease that apart. How would new Matt define or describe old Matt? Hmm. 
wow, this is, you should charge for this kind of therapy. <laughs> um, <clears throat> no, I think, I think, well, new Matt still swears, you know, he still, he still does construction around the house. This is the third house that we're, we're flipping now, but, um, you know, it's, uh, I, I think professional Matt in, in, uh, this is so bizarre to me. I'm sorry, but professional, <laughs> you know, I, I think I, I, I'm very proud of new Matt. I'm very proud of, of the things that I'm able to accomplish. Um, you know, but there still is this kind of, you know, I can't believe I've, I've come this far. Um, and my self-esteem is, is low to the point where, um, any success I have, I very often feel like I'm some kind of imposter, you know, like I've, fe- I've fooled someone, you know, for some reason, you know, for example, I, you know, yesterday I was um, working with uh, FAU filming a documentary series with them. And my part was on Mark Twain and I'm sitting there, you know, and there's cameras and there's makeup people touching up, you know, I mean, it's, and, and, and it's like, why am I here? Right. What the hell am I doing here? You know, that, that kind of thing, because I, you know, in in the the uh, the psychology in me says, well, I must have fooled somebody into thinking that I was a Mark Twain scholar enough to be here. You know that that that's the only logical explanation for it. You know, so it's it's still I still have trouble figuring out how I got how I got here. It, it's odd that you mentioned that because you're you mentioned Tracy earlier, and Tracy has also been one of those people where you know in, in that list of give me the best or not the best but the top three people you would want to listen to uh your name and tracy's name pretty much ping pong back and forth and she had the same explanation where she also expressed that she felt like she was the imposter in the room and i I pressed her on it and she we agreed to disagree towards the end uh do you think that well In my head, I, I am playing the imposter as well. Not to say that I'm as good an imposter as either you or Tracy, but I don't think I've, I, I've talked about not feeling deserving of the title of a professor yet. In my head, I'm thinking that when I get a PhD, that that is when perhaps that will happen. Um, and most other academics that I've spoken with felt that transition initially, whether it was justified or warranted or not, they mentioned that when they got a doctorate, you know, whether it's a terminal degree in law or medicine or English or, or math or history, whatever the case might be, that at least for a few moments, they felt that, you know, now they were the big cheese or now they were the real deal. Did you experience that back then? And then did modesty, Polish Midwestern modesty take over again? <laughs> or have you not felt that ever? No, I think when, when I did get my PhD, it, it did. I did feel like I've arrived somehow, that I've joined this kind of somehow socially elite or, or educationally elite that I've that I've. I've earned what I've had, but, but even so, you know, it, it still felt like an, an imposter, you know, maybe there was a, a text that I didn't read for class cause I was grading or something like that. And so a real professor would have read all of the texts or the real professor wouldn't have wrapped up an essay in grad school early because they were just tired and wanted to be done and were, were happy to take the B or something like that. Um, 
but I, you know, l- listening to your conversation there, and if if anyone's listening who hasn't listened to to that particular podcast with Tracy, I, I you know I recommend it because what I loved about there is that you really pressed her on you know what is what is a professor and and you know and I love that you kept coming back to you know again I'll ask you what's the difference, but what I found is you know I've I've taught at a liberal arts college, I've taught at at um, you know, our, our state college. Um, but what I found is the degree really doesn't make the professor in my opinion, mm-hmm. um, that, that, you know, you know, my, my doctorate degree cost me $68,000 and it got me a thousand dollar raise. So in, in, in 69 years, I'll start making a profit off of it. Uh, you know, so, <laughs> so, uh, but, it, but I, you know, that, that role of professor has changed so much from this kind of sage on the stage to really, you know, this, the, the science and the art of learning. And I think we see that at our college more than you would see at a university, you know, where, you know, where you're lecturing to, you know, a class of 350 people or something like that. And so I don't think that there's anything particular about a PhD that makes you arrive there. In fact, I, I would say that winning the Stewart Award helped me feel more that I've arrived than yeah. the PhD um, or the, you know, being nominated for a Bravo Award or something like that, being recognized by my peers, not since, you know, not necessarily a, a accrediting body of, you know, SACs or something like that. Um, and that, you know, when you really see, um, you know, some of our professors and how much they care about student success and how much they're willing to help students, you know, that's, that's kind of what I aspire to be, you know, rather than, you know, resting on a, on a terminal degree, something like that. I don't know if I answered your question. Yeah, you did. The, the I should last have warned sentence. you. I tend to ramble. And <laughs> That's okay. Those, those are the best ones because then I can take my time to think about what I really want to ask before I start rambling. I think uh, a long time ago you said, how did I end up down south? You know, maybe in in my adult life, mm-hmm. you know, that, that was kind of a different story. But it's, uh, you know, when I was going back to grad school, my wife told me, uh, cool, I had gotten my master's degree. And, um, my wife said, well, if you're going back to grad school, then you got to take me someplace warm because she hates the cold. She's okay with the cloud. She hates the cold. You know, I, I love the cold. I don't mind days like this when the heat index is 110 or whatever it is, it's miserable for me. Um, but it's the sunshine that I really do, that I really do like. But, um, so I applied to schools all over the South and, and when she wasn't looking, I, you know, I applied to, uh, some Northern schools as well. And, um, but I ended up at, at Auburn University and they offered me a very lucrative deal to, uh, you know, to become a fellow down there. And um, one of the, the leading world Mark Twain scholars is there. And I had worked with him marginally before that. Um, and so it seemed just like a natural, natural fit. Ultimately, I had it narrowed down to Auburn and the University of Tennessee, Knoxville which I love the mountains as well. You know, maybe that's where I'll end up retiring because it'll be somewhere in between Michigan and Florida. But, um, but for, for it, it was a very easy choice for to choose Auburn University, which of course nobody really has heard of outside of, you know, maybe college football realm. But <laughs> So the other thing that always follows right after a suggestion for your name is, uh, oh, you know, Get Matt Clauser or get Klaus on your podcast. Ask him about Mark Twain. Mm. And yeah. usually questions just stop there. So 
Mm-hmm. Now, I know why your name gets associated with Mark Twain, but why did you pursue to study him academically? Mm-hmm. Well, um, it actually happened by accident. It's an embarrassing story, but I don't mind sharing it. I I was teaching high school at the time. I was getting my master's degree um, at Eastern University. Eastern Michigan University is a, is another Mark Twain scholar, fairly reputable. Uh, I wouldn't even say fa- fairly, very reputable Mark Twain scholar. Um, but I didn't know that. I needed a class. I you know I wanted to get my master's degree at the time. My incentive for getting a master's degree was because you got a ten thousand dollar raise when you were a high school teacher in Michigan and and um, well, why wouldn't I do that? And so, sure. but I needed a summer class. And what one of the things that Eastern Michigan does in the summer that's very cool in their English department is that they have one week classes where you do all of the reading ahead of time. And literature lends itself to this, of course. You do reading and assignments ahead of time. And then you have class for a week straight, 45 hours of class. And then you do the research, you know, and any kind of final projects or papers and stuff like that afterwards. So they have really cool class. Like I took a Victorian feasts and famines class and we went up into northern Michigan and and, um, you know, we read uh, Victorian literature that traced, you know, from the, from the Victorian very poor to the, you know, to the elite. And each day the professor had cooked meals for us. So we started off with like cornbread and beans because that's, you know, the Victorians would have eaten something similar. And then we ended up, you know, the very last class, she took us all at the dinner, this big five course kind of Victorian, you know, class. So I'm getting far away from Mark Twain. So I'll get back. So one of the classes I signed up for was called Mark Twain for Teachers. Like, oh, cool. I really, I would love to tell you that I was reading Mark Twain as a kid. I I don't think so. I was at least semi-aware of Tom Sawyer um, and Huckleberry Finn. Um, But Huck Finn was a, you know, a staple. So I had read Huckleberry Finn um, and borrowed tons of materials for, from other teachers to, to teach it, you know, in, in 11th grade American literature. But um, so I thought, okay, this is great. It's a great opportunity. So uh, before the cl- you know, but as, as far as I know, it was a one week class, but it was just held there on Eastern's campus. So before the class, we get this bizarre email from the professor that he wants to meet ahead of time. You know, and I thought that's really strange, right? Because we only had the week worth of classes. But nonetheless, you know, I, you know, went ahead and uh, attended and we, we sat in a classroom and he went over the syllabus and expectations and the prior reading assignments, nothing out of the ordinary for this type of class. And then he's like, you know, the, the, well, the last thing we need to do is figure out carpools. And, and I'm like, wait, what? So there I am, right? Ignorant, not afraid to ask a dumb question, right? So like, raise my hand, like, car, carpool, where are we going? Right. And I thought he meant like, we're going to figure out carpools for that night to go somewhere right after. And, um, he said, well, you know, we're going to New York. And I'm like, New York? Why are we going to New York? And I hadn't read the small print, right? Like many of our students mm-hmm. don't. And the class was actually held at Elmira College, which is in Elmira, New York. East and West in New York is right in the center of the state in the very south end. In fact, it's very close to the Pennsylvania border. But that's where Mark Twain's summer home was. And so Elmira College is where the Center for Mark Twain Studies is. And they, um, Mark Twain's home and his study was donated to um, Elmira College. And so, so the, the, uh, the class was actually held on Mark Twain's porch, which is wow. a very significant um, 
uh, place in American literature. So we, so, and, and it's up, up on the hill. So we would go to, we, we stayed in the dorms at Elmira College. They fed us very, very well. Um, and then, you know, after breakfast in the morning, we would all drive up, you know, to Mark Twain's house and we would have class on the porch and then, and then they would give us lunch and things like that right on the porch. But the reason why it's so significant is so Mark Twain had a study that was up on the a hill, a little bit further up a hill, you know, still on the property there that overlooked the mountains and things like that. And that's where he would spend the day writing. And so he would spend the day writing, incidentally smoking 40 cigars a day while he read, while he wrote. And then in the evening after dinner, uh, he would sit out with his family on the porch and that's where he would read to them because, you know, they didn't have Kardashians to keep up with. And so, you know, he would read to them the, um, what he wrote for the day. So the very first readings of Tom Sawyer and Puddinghead Wilson and the Prince and the Pauper and all of these books were read right there on the porch where we were sitting in the class. And so through the process between the professor absolutely making the text come alive, um, he was more of a performer than a professor, um, and the fascinating biography that is Mark Twain's biography, I really fell in love with Mark Twain, but I kind of did it in a backwards way where I fell in love with his biography first and then, you know, and then read the, you know, studied, you know, the literature extensively. And so um, working with that professor again, I took him for another class in the project for that class. I, I found myself going back to Huckleberry Finn's manuscripts and the professor says, you know, this is a really good project. I really, you know, and of course there I am, right? No, it's dumb. You know, that, that kind of, you know, humility or, or self-doubt. And, and he said, no, I'm serious. This is a really good project. And so he recommended that I submit it for a research fellowship through the Center for Mark Twain Studies. And I did. And um, I was able to travel back to Elmira, New York. And my family and I stayed in Mark Twain's house for several weeks in, um, and while I did the research there. And so it was an unpaid fellowship. But the way they pay you is that, you know, they, they supply all the research. They, you know, kind of quasi assign you a librarian for any of the archives and things like that. Um, and then we lived in Mark Twain's house and, and I enjoyed it so much. Um, my daughter was just a, a, a babe in arms at the time. So, you know, we have a picture of her being bathed in Mark Twain's sink. And so, you know, it's, it's kind of a joke that we tell with her, you know, that you know, not everybody's been taking a bath in Mark Twain's sink. <laughs> and, and for me, you know, I mean, that's the equivalent of winning the Super Bowl to be able to, you know, live in his house, you know, all of his same furniture, at least most of the same furniture. And, and, um, and it's, a, you know, they call it a summer home, but it's, it's this enormous, it's a, you know, um, you know, eight bedroom you know, mansion, so to speak, you know, it's got a library in it and, you know, that, that kind of thing. And, you know, it still has the carriage house there and, and that kind of thing. And so, while I was there, I actually came across a typescript of one of his stories um, that really hasn't been studied called You've Been a Damn Fool, Mary. And it was published from the manuscript because the typescript was thought to be lost. And the typescript, I'm not sure how, how familiar you are with the printing I, I'm not. I was going right to there. wait until you finished before <clears throat> okay. you before asking. So how this works question. is is back then, right? We didn't have word processors. So back then, Mark Twain would write out, or any author would write out by hand, you know, what they wanted the book to say, and they would send it to the publisher, and the publisher would set all the type for it, you know, how it might it might appear in the book, and then they would um, they would run like just one copy of it 
and they would that's called the typescript and they would send it back to Mark Twain and he would make any changes that he needed to write on the typescript and then they would send it back to the publisher and then that would be printed from his changes there. So they had the original manuscript but that's kind of the very first rough draft. And so they didn't, We, you know, normally when things are printed or reprinted, it's printed from, you know, the, naturally the, the, the typescript. So this was thought to be lost. So when they printed the story posthumously, they didn't know, you know, what it was supposed to look like because it was only printed, you know, from the, the manuscript. Well, this typescript turns up of all places in this trunk in this woman's attic in Australia that apparently, you know, somehow through the family, you know, or friends, it got handed down or it was, you know, the publisher, I think, handed it down and then passed away. And the woman lived in Australia and they sent her all his stuff. So, so while I was there, you know, I was talking with the director of the Center for Mark Twain Studies and I said, you know, this is fascinating. I wish I had more time to study it. And she said, you know, we got it a year ago and nobody has done anything with it. And, um, um, but I went back to my business about writing about Huckleberry Finn and I was researching how we can use the changes in Mark Twain's manuscripts, you know, to, to teach composition. You know, why is he changing this and what does that do? You know, that kind of thing. So a couple of weeks after I returned home, I got a phone call from the Center for Mark Twain Studies and they said, you know, we've been thinking about it and we'd, we'd like we'd like you to come back and see what you can do with this typescript, and which was a, a, amazing for me. So I got to do a second one and go back and live for a couple more weeks in Mark Twain's house and sort through that typescript and compare it. And so that was a little bit more scientific project of looking at the changes and what does that mean and, you know, ultimately led to a publication on it. But um yeah, I mean, his his life is just incredibly uh, tragic. It's incredibly uh, fascinating. Um, you know, he's friends with Thomas Edison. He's friends with Helen Keller. He's dying by invitation with world leaders. You know, he's a poor kid from Missouri who, you know, at one point had to sell his furniture so they could buy groceries, you know, and, and makes this, you know, incredible you know, wealth or they're the Mark Twain empire and then loses the wealth from bad investments. And, you know, so I can go on and on. So I'll shut up, but it's, you know, <clears throat> just that fascinating, you know, aspect of, of Mark Twain studies that's, you know, that's there. And so the, the centerpiece of my dissertation was a chapter on Mark Twain and, um, um, you know, I had other chapters of course with other authors, but that, uh, you know, it, it, it continues with me. I mean, it's very much America, you know. That, that leads perfectly into one of the other questions I was going to ask. So, again, forgive my ignorance, but I, I feel comfortable asking the question of you. Uh, in math, if you were to get a PhD, you have to prove a result that has been unproven thus far. So the, the way you contribute to the knowledge base is by solving a problem that no one else in the world has solved. Uh, in physics, your chemistry, your biology, you, you have to come up with a new experiment and produce a new result that hasn't been produced thus far. Or you have to contribute to the extension of the knowledge base ever so slightly, but still that needs to happen. What's the equivalent of that? So what <clears throat> would one need to do for, I, I guess, a PhD in English? Um, it, it, are you judged on the same productivity, I guess, or what is a PhD in, say, English judged on? 
Uh, yes or no. Uh, the difference is that in English, you 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 rarely prove, but you argue strongly for. Um, okay. But same thing, right? Here's an area that hasn't been um, explored or understood fully, um, and and um, you know you you explore that more and you argue for you know whatever that is. I mean, to some degree, you prove it with the evidence that you that you lay out but uh, you know i don't know that you ever could prove something about literature and argument about literature the way you could in in a math or science sure it, it, it's <clears throat> you know it, at least in mathematics that's the, the the field i know the most about not much but the most uh there there are very defined clear-cut problems that need to be solved so it's not as simple as you know prove that two plus two is four uh and that's an incredibly difficult task that bertrand russell undertook he spent i don't know 360 pages proving that one plus one was two something that we just axiomatically uh you know believe to be the case that well mm. it, it's often used as a replacement for something that's morbidly obvious that well duh that's it's one plus one that, that's mm. two and so in, in at least mathematics, the problems that I've seen people solve, and I may not understand them, but it's a very clear-cut thing that they're trying to establish, that either this proposition is true or this proposition is false. And I understand in literature, there may not be these clear-cut ideas that you know, have to either be have to be proven axiomatically or, or disproved axiomatically. Mm. Uh, and again, I, I probably, and I'm most certainly not giving literature enough credit for this, but for instance, in mathematics, solving one problem often leads to others. Mm -hmm. So you say, okay, I got this result. Well, crap. Now that results in 10 other problems in related fields. And in some cases, brand new fields are born as a result of some you know, subliminal uh, proof that someone writes. Uh, or in order to prove a proposition or to put it to rest, you have to come up with entire branches of mathematics that did not exist before. Does that have a counterpart in literature? Because in my very uninformed opinion, let's say you're taking, I don't know, Huck Finn. What would be the equivalent of that if one exists, where mm. you would read Huck Finn as I would in high school, get a very cursory understanding of it, how would perhaps it be read differently in a doctoral dissertation or for one? Oh, yeah. So in terms of research, and this ties a little bit to my, to my uh, dissertation, but in terms of research, so we read Huckleberry Finn, and then if we reread and we look really closely, there's kind of a shift in tone to Huckleberry Finn. So the, first, the earlier chapters are very much Tom Sawyer, right? This kind of nostalgic, goofy kid, right? You know, having fun. But then the later chapters get really, really dark. Mm -hmm. You know, people shooting each other in the face and, and that kind of thing. You know, it's the stuff that we we forget about when Disney makes the, the you know, Jonathan sure. Taylor Thomas version of Huckleberry Finn, you know. Um, but then when we look closely, you know, what do we know? So the more we understand about Mark Twain, the more we read his letters, the more we realize that he's aware of the social injustices going on in the South. And, you know, and then we look at his timeline and we go, you know, he left the South at a relatively young age, you know, um, 
if I had to do the math, I'm trying to do the math in my head and you probably could do it a lot faster, but, you know, but at a relatively young age, um, and didn't return until years later. Mm-hmm. And when he returned, right, the, the South is in reconstruction, you know, and, and you know, this there's reconstruction south there's very little redeeming qualities about it and the the his return there coincides with the shift in tone in huckleberry finn you know if we look at the timeline of his, his composition so as we learn new things then our understanding of the texts you know kind of shift and and that's kind of what uh, I guess that might be the exception to that. You know, it's not uncommon for somebody to write something and then 10, 15, maybe even a year later, you know, somebody else discovers something new or we discover something new and it kind of disproves or at least seriously calls into question what was written before, you know, that that kind of thing. So it's... um. I, I don't know if that if that's a an equal analogy. You know, it's not. It's definitely not a one to one analogy. But yeah, I, I, I doubt that one exists. And I, I wasn't asking for that, but just to understand what would someone who's getting a PhD in English read it as? How would mm-hmm. they read it differently than perhaps me just flipping through the pages and looking for uh, you know facts to memorize as I did when I was a senior in high school? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah, and that's. I mean, I think that that's part of the problem about the way that we teach literature in 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 the United States. And I'm, of, of course I'm, or at least historically the way we have, you know, and that's a gross, gross, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Gross, um, generalization. Yeah. Oversimplification. Sure. But, um, you know, when I was in high school, you know, you read this poem and your teacher told you what it meant, you know, and your teacher told you what the, what the vase, you know, in the kitchen meant, and when it broke, this is what that meant, and you know, and why it's a metaphor. And if you didn't see that, then you're some kind of idiot, mm-hmm. you know. And and your grade is based on, like you said, very largely, like you know, what color was the man's shirt, and you know, and then multiple choice, you know, that kind of thing. And I'm not saying that that's the way it's always been taught. That was my experience, you know, in in high school, but um, <clears throat> um, you know. And that's kind of some of the unraveling that I have to do, you know, because I'm I'm pretty convinced. I bet my paycheck that none of my students on the first day of class woke up and were like, "Yeah, I get to take a literature class today," you know, because they've been they've been beaten with that. And then standardized testing, of course, has, has limited that even more. They don't even read works anymore; they read passages mm-hmm. and answer multiple choice questions because that's how schools are ultimately, you know, getting recognition and or funding. So my my children are victims to that. Um, so, you know, th- that kind of approach is, is what I have to undo with my students. And, you know, we read passages and we talk about, well, how do you relate? Or what if you look at it through this lens or this lens, or, you know, how do your life events bring you to the text differently than the student next to you? And, you know, those kind of things. And I've, I've taken pages out of your playbook as well, where I will introduce a concept in the class and it's their job. Right. You sort this question, you sort the answer to this question out. You know, it looks different in literature, you know, than it does in, in math. Sure. But, um, um, you know, and I, you know, I circulate the room and I'll, I'll help when I can. But they get really frustrated with me because they'll say things like, why don't you just tell me? Or, you know, why don't you tell us the answer? And I'm like, that, that's not what literature, you know, does. And so, you know, I try to, to, uh, to approach, you know, 
literature is um, what do I want them to do when they leave my class? You know, not what do I want them to do this semester? Um, and then I build all of the skills from from that. Um, you know, so I want them to be able to encounter a text and consider it a couple, you know, ways differently or, or even a movie or, or, you know, video game or something, you know, what the story that's in these things, you know, what do you make of that? And, and um, that, that's kind of how I, how I approach it. Again, I don't know if I answered your question or not. You did. I, <laughs> oh, okay. I'll make sense of my, the answers are always right. The questions are wrong. That, that's what I've learned over the past few years of, of, of trying inquiry-based learning, that mm -hmm. I, I asked the wrong questions. The students' answers are always right. <laughs> In And again, you can avoid to answer this question if you like. Uh, I would argue uh, reasonably poorly that uh, maybe a few years ago, one could walk into a, a literature class and read works by authors like Mark Twain, people that were talking about social justice issues without necessarily overtly saying this is the focus of this book, but there were the, the ideas are entrenched in there. Mm -hmm. uh, I would argue that a few years ago, it wouldn't be so offensive of an idea to look at anything that you're reading or hearing or watching through different lenses without the lenses being attached these uh, these notions of oh that's a an elitist lens or that's a uh, a welfare lens or that's a democratic lens and that's a republican lens mm. i find that now more so than than before it, instead of even being willing to look through different lenses and looking at things from different perspectives folks are so polarized in their choices of lenses uh, that they wish to grab and say, okay, I'm going to analyze this text thinking about this or keeping this in mind. Have you noticed that as well? Or if you have, then how do you, how has your teaching changed as a result of it? If, if at all. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, one of, one of the, uh, the, the, hard, the, one of the hard changes over the, so I'm entering my 20th year teaching, which makes me feel very old to say, but you know, one of the hard changes is that in the 21st century, the students have all the answers on their smartphone, you know? So the ways that literature is, was taught in the past really aren't even functional anymore, mm -hmm. you know, because a student can read a, a summary of the text and, and that kind of thing. So instead, yeah, we have to change our, our approach to it, but you're right. One of them is getting, you know, and, and so one of the things we do is we look at a number of, of different lenses. Um, you know, if we look at a Marxist lens, right, what does, you know, what does, how to, if we consider the imbalance of, of social class or the imbalance of wealth in this story, what does that tell us? You know, if we look at a post-colonial lens of, you know, what is the imbalance of power between ethnic groups say about this? But I don't have to, to necessarily lead them to any conclusions. A lot of them come in with a lot of conclusions already been made, mm -hmm. but instead what we do very often is we, you know, and we sometimes even chart this out, you know, <clears throat> Um, you know, what if, what if we look at the story through this lens instead, you know? And so by that, what I try to do is give them this kind of, um, 
buffet of choices to explore. And initially, early in the semester, I make them explore each. And then, you know, so at least they get, you know, opposed or exposed to uh, to the different things, you know, because some some people will um, will read things a certain way. And I'm guilty of this as well. I read things a lot through a Marxist lens, you know, that kind of imbalance of power of social class and what does wealth privilege provide that, you know, other people don't. Of course, that's my background. And why, why wouldn't I? And I recognize that in my students as well. You know, they, they come in through, you know, depending on life experience, how does imbalance of power between, um, you know, gender or, or something like that, you know, <clears throat> change our understanding of this text. And, um, and by doing that, it, it, it has them look at the text in different ways that they otherwise wouldn't. But more importantly, it has them looking at the world in ways that they otherwise wouldn't. And that's right now, that's the best thing that I can do is just try to see because we, we you know, we're so polarized in, in all of our culture and our media and, and that kind of thing that, you know, anything we can do to get them to consider a different view and look for common ground rather than the difference. You know, maybe that's a, maybe that's an exercise in futility. I, I don't know. But um, but I try to give them the tools to just look at things differently. And I think through the process of doing that, that's where you kind of develop as a as a person. Fair enough. Did um, I answer the? I feel like I'm not answering your questions at all. You are. <laughs> I, I'm. I'm thinking also of having asked Kenneth the same question, and I. It, it comes more of a selfish need uh, to try to figure out how to deal with these issues when they pop up in my own classes. Mm. So one of the things I asked her, and I think maybe Shalon as well, was, you know, if it, I'm in your class and you're talking about advocacy for vaccinations, mm. I feel very strongly that everyone should get vaccinated against whatever diseases uh, are, are going around. And uh, I, I think the benefit of vaccinations is not just to the individual that's getting the inoculation, but also in terms of herd, herd immunity, that if enough people have the vaccine, then the, the disease does not propagate as quickly and it doesn't ravage entire societies. Mm -hmm. uh, and I asked her that if I present this very strong opinion, how do you balance that in class between me and let's say, Matt Klaus is in the class and he's completely against vaccinations and he thinks for his own reasons that I am insane. Mm -hmm. And and she said, well, I would, as long as both parties are respectful, I, I would allow both parties a platform to speak and, and to share whatever they wish to share. Uh, that's something that I've struggled with because as a mathematician, perhaps, or maybe someone who values logic over all else, uh, if someone presents to me an, a logical, coherent argument with appropriate data to back up whatever study has been done, and they say, if you do this, if you drink out of this white cup, you and everyone you love around you, even those people that you don't, will be protected from this blight, will be protected from this pandemic. But if you drink out of the blue cup, well, I don't have a blue cup, but imagine that I did. If I, <laughs> if I drink out of the blue cup, then you're just drinking plain water and, and you know, it might be the case that you never get infected or uh, it might be the case that, you know, you can drive for hundreds of years without a seatbelt and never get into an accident. But on the day that you do, disaster will ensue. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and she answered it pretty much this. Both I think Shalon and, and Kenneth answered it the same way you did, which is, you know, you give people a smorgasbord of options and then you let them choose what they want to eat. Um, and I guess that's what I have to try to do and, and, and stop at that point and, and pull back and say, okay, now you get to decide what you want to eat, whether you want to, you know, the red pill or the blue pill. Mm. Whereas I, I tend to tell people, Hey, the red pill is a lot better. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think, I think that that's, um, one, I, I side with you. I don't understand the other side of the argument when we come into to vaccinations, but I think that has to be even harder for somebody that's, um, that has that mathematical mind, right. You know, that because it's, you know, this is completely logical. Absolutely. And so for me, the, where, where I'm lucky is that in what I teach has to do a lot with argumentation. Mm-hmm. So especially if I'm teaching like composition two, which is research writing and, and uh, you know, argumentation, and even composition one, and to some degree literature as well, you know, is, is, you know, present the other side, and then you have to argue against that, you know, so it, it's, they're not allowed to ignore the other side, they have to say, what is the opposing side saying, and why are they wrong, you know, and, and in that case, you know, in in vaccinations, I think would be, it would be a very interesting topic to see a student, you know, try to, research, you know, that those kind of arguments. I think Tracy is, you know, saying that, you know, Sue completely flipped their argument once they started doing the research. But um but yeah, I mean that's the the you know, whenever you argue you have to think about what the other side will say and what your response to that is, you know, almost like a chess match. And um um based on what they're saying, you know, so so you have to recognize or refute the the other side's argument. So that for for me, it's kind of almost a natural place for that argument in there. Um, you know, you, I think, would have the advantage of, okay, well, let's talk about the statistics involved in this, you know, that that kind of thing. You know, I mean, how many people have do we know that were vaccinated by a microchip that's, you know, controlled by the by the dark web or, or whatever the, the, the latest Illuminati. argument is? It's what the, is it? It's the 5G Tower Illuminati. Oh, that's right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, it, it, it does, it's hard sometimes, you know, to, or it's gotten easier, but it, it's, it's been hard to, to, you know, you push all of your personal opinions aside and you assess the argument that they're making, not the Content. And I think therein lies the disciplinary difference. In in mathematics, we've been trained to not operate on false assumptions, even to judge the, the validity of the argument that follows. So if you start with the wrong supposition, if you start with the wrong definitions, or if you start with the wrong assumptions, anything that follows is bunk. It, it cannot possibly follow that that's the truth. So, you know, in, in my head... The, the dichotomy is vaccinations are good, vaccinations are bad. So if vaccinations are good, well, then there's an entire argument that, you know, follows as a result of that assumption mm-hmm. or that vaccinations are useful if we were to take a utilitarian lens to it. Uh, but if we were to start with vaccinations are harmful, then yes, you can craft the most amazing argument based on it, that one that I would not be able to refute. Uh, and, you know, compositionally or if you were arguing in a rhetoric class 
that would get an A. But in a mathematician's course, that would get an F because you started with the wrong assumption. And anything as a result of that is, is uh, unfortunately, a house of cards. Well, and, and I, I don't want to underestimate the importance of sound research on their end, though, as well. Sure. Right, and sound sources. And so without naming news sources, you know, sometimes we have to pull the student aside and go, well, I see you cited this news source. And even though it has the word news in the title, it might not be the most reliable or, you know, something sure. like that. Or, you know, where else can we, you know, find evidence of this? And it's, you know, so to craft the argument is one thing, but then to craft the support behind the argument, they still have to show evidence. And that's usually where things start to fall apart for them. Um, there, but it is, it's a challenge. It, it is a challenge because students, you know, will sometimes dig their heels in and like, no, I want, I want to argue this. And, you know, and, you know, we've, we've seen this, I've been teaching a long time. I've seen students, you know, but, and, and I won't tell them no, or very rarely tell them no, but I will tell them, you know, well, students in the past have tried to argue this and this is where they've encountered issues. Do you think you can resolve those issues? You know, and most of the time they, they wouldn't be able to. And, do you so, think that that ability to to set aside your own personal beliefs and uh well share what you just shared comes with time and and experience or well does it come with just being older and as a result wiser or do you think that that comes with having been in the classroom for a longer period of time or is it some combination of the two I think it's some combination of of the two you know I mean it was you know 20 years ago you know, I, I had very strict um, beliefs, and now I see that not everything is black and white. Although, again, with the vaccination things, I think that's, in my opinion, almost as black and white as you can get. But, but nonetheless, um, you know. But I think that you know, classroom technique, you know, is has become a lot, you know, a lot easier as as well. You know, to approach a student, and say, well, you know, what what interests you about this? You know, and just asking them questions. Right? Do you think you're going to be able to find evidence about this, right? Or what evidence have you been able to find? Or go ahead and see what you can find and come back. And they 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 see for themselves that the argument that they maybe have been told by their choice of uh, media platform is may not be the case. You know, something you know something along those lines. So it, it's I think a combination of of both. One kind of with getting older, being able to to step back and let them explore the direction that they want to explore. But at the same time, having the, the, uh, the experience of knowing, you know, that if, if you let them, if you let them explore a lot of times, they'll find the same conclusion that you knew to be upfront all sure. along. Right? Not unlike raising teenagers as well. <laughs> you know, I get a lot of mileage out of, well, do you think that that's a good idea? <laughs> and usually the answer is no. So, <laughs> uh, how old are your teenagers? If you don't mind me asking, uh, seventeen and fifteen now. So, um, and they inspire me every every day. I mean, it's just in, incredible. My son will be dual, in, or I'm sorry, early admitting at Palm Beach State uh, mm -hmm. next year. He's been dual enrolled for for a few years now. He's on track to graduate with his AA degree. Wow. Um, um, I would love to say that that's that that was me behind it, but this is a goal that he just decided he wants to pursue, and and he's very, uh, you know, very driven of, about that. So it's um 
it, it ins- absolutely inspires me. Um, and he's been like that since kindergarten. Um, he went to a, to a actually nationally recognized kindergarten in Alabama, which, which sounds counterintuitive. <laughs> um, no I didn't want to my say friends it, but back you in said Alabama, it's all right? laugh but, about it. <laughs> um, but, but the, the, the kindergarten went like this first day of class, you find your, your classroom, all the walls are blank and empty. The hallways are blank and empty. And your teacher rounds the kids up and says, what should we learn about? And one kid in the class randomly said Hawaii, right? And I don't know where that came from, right? Who knows where kindergartens thought some? I'm, I'm assuming somebody in his family had recently talked about Hawaii or whatever. And he just says, oh, that's great. What do we want to learn about Hawaii? You know? And one of the kids said animals. He said, okay, let's go to the library. And they walked down to the library, found books on animals, you know? And each kid found a book on animals and what, you know, they spent time working independently you know, which is crazy, uh, you know, for, for a kindergartner, right. But working independently, looking at pictures, if they weren't at reading level yet, or, you know, whatever. And then, you know, after a certain amount of time, she rounded them all back up. And what did we learn? You know, what did, what did we learn about Hawaii and or the animals? And, and then, you know, the, they explored animals. And of course she worked the math lessons into animals and that kind of thing. And, then, you know, a little while later, it became, you know, we should take a trip to Hawaii, right? You know, a fictional trip, of course, but, you know, how would we get there? You know, and so well, some kids says a cruise ship. Okay, well, what kind of jobs are there on a cruise ship? Do you know? No, we don't know. Well, go home tonight, ask your parents, see what you'd find out. Come back the next time. And this is how the entire class worked. And of course, the teacher is a genius behind this because she's checking off all of their learning outcomes. But the kids are exploring these things. And then, you know, they come in one day and the entire hallway is decorated like Hawaii, you know, with, with the craft paper in the trees and the jungles. And, and, you know, the pictures of the animals that the kids drew now are part of the jungle. And, and you know, it's just it, absolutely incredible. And, you know, to this day, he's 17 years old. He's got a smartphone at his hand. He's got a computer. Um, if he wants to learn something, his first instinct is, hey, Dad, can we go to the library? I want to figure, you know figure this out and and you know that's been it's paid dividends you know over and over again and my daughter's the same way they're both very very avid readers um you know my daughter's probably reading two or three novels a week um and wow and uh, probably more now because it's you know she can't go out and hang out with her friends but but same thing and she's always been very very driven she's a she's an incredible athlete um she's a junior olympian um in in trampoline and tumbling and and um you know, just that kind of drive that she has to be successful. And again, I, I, I would love to say that that was me, but it's, it's not, you know, Hey dad, I want to try this out. Okay. You know, Hey dad, I think I'd like to, you know, go to the next, you know, move up to the next level in trampoline. Okay. You know, dad, I think I really want to pursue this. All right. Well, let's talk with your coach. You know, it actually got to the point where we, sat down with the coach and the coach said, you know, I think she could be an Olympian, you know, which again, it it fascinates me, right? It it, it makes me speechless. But the coach said, but what would have to have to happen is she would have to be homeschooled. And we're talking about being in the gym, you know, week after week after week. And of course that gets very expensive or day after day, I'm sorry, not week after week, but, um, 
because very expensive, but you know, that's, we'll find the money somehow, you know, if it's a home equity loan, we'll find the money. And so we talk with her and she says, no, I don't, I, I don't think I want to go that route. And, oh, okay. But yeah, she was um, at one point sixth in the nation in, in the junior Olympics and in one of her events and in 10th in another. And I'm not bragging so much as I'm saying, it's just this drive is just incredible to me. And they inspire me. They don't realize how much they inspire me. I try to tell them, but you know, they're teenagers and dad doesn't know anything, but um, um just incredible. I, I wish I had that kind of drive or curiosities, you know, that, that at their age, you know, I was playing baseball and fixing cars when I was their age. <laughs> I'm going to do the same thing I did with Tracy and it, well, I'm doing it much later with you now. You, you honestly genuinely don't think that you've had any part to play in that. I'm not See, saying this that this is, is a Polish humility not, coming. <laughs> <laughs> I knew um, that was gonna get. I knew no, that was I mean, gonna I get you there. I, I, I think we, I think we have, and I, and I'd love to say it's just me. It's my wife as well, and my wife is a was an early education major. Um, she taught early education um, uh, as well before, and so. Um, you know, she had an incredible role because she's the one that came up with things like family reading time, you know, where we all sat down and read. It didn't matter what it was. We were reading all together. You know, she came up with, you know, insisting that we're going to have dinner together and at dinner, we're going to talk about our day and we're going to reflect about our day or we're going to talk about our goals for tomorrow or those kind of things. So um, I would say she had more of a role in it than, than I did. But what we both have always done is... Um, you know, we, we talk with our children about choices, both present and future choices, and we provide them guidance and we provide them support when they make bad choices. And, um, you know, sometimes we have to nudge them in the right direction a little bit, you know, if they were worried, they're going to get too, too off course. But, you know, I mean, it's, it's, you know, I, I suppose we had a role in it, um, but the fact that they continue to make, you know, good choices and, and that kind of thing, um, you know, and those are being tested now, you know, they miss their friends incredibly, you sure. know, my daughter more than more so than my son, because my son, you know, he, he plays video games with his friends online. So, and my daughter will a little bit, um, you know, or FaceTime and that kind of stuff. But, um, you know, she has always been very, very shy. And it wasn't until this past year that she really, consciously made an effort and even said, you know, dad, I really want to try to be less shy. I want to try to, um, you know, engage in more conversations and that kind of thing. And she has. And so now she's, you know, kind of really blossomed into this social person and, and then COVID happens. <laughs> and so, so she's, you know, she's really having, um, uh, more of a challenge than my son is, is with this, but, um, you know, but, but they understand though, you know, they, you know, there's no stomping off mad because dad says no, that I can't go to a sleepover, even though all my friends are right now, you know, instead she understands why dad is shaking her head going, what are these parents thinking? Sure. You know, and, and, um, you know, so, so it, it's, it's them that continue to make good choices and, and things like that when, when bad choices are sometimes easier, maybe sometimes more fun, you know, but, um. So, so maybe, yeah, I, I suppose I, I, I'll admit that we had a role in it, but, um, thank you. you. Know, somewhere we did something right along the line. I don't know. Uh, there we go again. 
something you said earlier about the experience your, your son had, and well, I guess all of you had in kindergarten, it, it reminds me very much of the Scandinavian model of education where, you know, at, at that early of an age, instead of indoctrinating small children with uh, rote memorization and you got to memorize your letters and you got to know your numbers from one through 10 or whatever the case might be. And you have to know addition and subtraction. Uh, they, I, I don't know if they do something similar, but my cousin's daughter is uh, seven. Sorry, Tina. Uh, I think she's seven. And my sister's wedding was this past November. She came over from Norway with her family, and and she, uh, you know, was talking about how uh, the little one doesn't know fractions, and how all her peers in India are, you know, quote unquote, math geniuses because they can add and subtract fractions, and Alantika doesn't even know what they are or how to play with them. And we we sat down and we played some. Uh, strategy board games and then we played something with you know where i had a, a decided advantage because i could calculate the torque it was this little archimedean board on a fulcrum and you had little uh, you know ceramic balls on there and then you had to place them and you have to get all your balls onto the other side without the wooden board touching the table so it, it's you know it's a seesaw that goes back and forth mm -hmm. but you have to keep counterbalancing it uh so I lost once because I was just making random moves and, you know, she's getting very happy and, oh, I beat Mamu. And I was like, oh, you little brat. So the <laughs> second time around, I, I, I thought about it a little bit and she beat me again very, very handily. And the third time around, I, I'm sitting there doing these torque calculations of, <laughs> you know, this is where the dot should go. <laughs> I, I don't want to, my, my pride is taking over at this stage. And the third time she beat me as well. And I asked her, why did you move the things? That, I mean, what, what reason would you have to go there? And she said, well, I don't know. It just felt right. And that was, you know, in my uninformed opinion, purely a result of, uh, of teaching young people how to think and developing that intuition of maybe you don't have the ability yet to verbalize why you did the thing that you did. But if, if you, put the right mode of, of thinking and curiosity into a child's brain, you do significantly more uh, good than just saying, memorize the English alphabet or the Norwegian alphabet or whatever, you know, seven-year-olds would do in different countries. So I guess the, the long-winded question is, why do you think that that doesn't happen when it's been proven to be better? When you can see that this is obviously better? Why is an inquiry and game playing approach not taken uh, everywhere? Um, without without getting on my soapbox, I don't know if no, I can. No, 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 please. The soapbox that, is yours. Stand as no. I mean, we, we consistently see a pattern of um, of cutting education funding, and when you cut education funding, um, you know, we we. It, it's this factory approach to teaching and, and that kind of thing. And so, um, and, and, and I may be misspeaking here, but I think somewhere along the lines, our former governor had a friend or an associate or maybe even a family relative who was somehow connected to, um, 
a standardized testing company. And so these things become kind of forced. And so the goal is to, you know, get my students to pass this test so that I can get a raise or stay employed or whatever. So my school can get more money, whatever that is. And when, when, when the objective becomes to get kids to, to fill in circles, you know, on a, on a standardized test, then, um, the knowledge and the approach to that knowledge will follow. Um, because we don't have a standardized test that says, you know, you have this fulcrum, you know, and explain your thought process on mm -hmm. how to figure that out. Right. I mean, we maybe have a fulcrum and we have, you know, how many marbles does it take to, you know, whatever, and here's your choices, sure. but we, we don't have, you know, that kind of, um, um, approach in the measures that will keep me employed or my school functioning or, you know, measuring our, our students success about that, you know, but you see so many kids that are brilliant, but don't do well on standardized testing like that. Um, and in some cases that's because they're thinking ahead in some cases, you know, um, you know, the kids are recognizing that the question is flawed before the test designers are, you know, so it depends on how you answer, you know, that, that kind of thing. So I think that that's, and, and I'll get off my soapbox now, but I think that when, when a measure of educational success at the institutional level is whether or not they can do X, Y, and Z, then those things kind of tend to follow. Where instead if our measure of success was, you know, is your child able to, to think this way, regardless what the question is, or regardless, you know, that kind of thing. And I shouldn't say this as a literature professor, but to me, the, the, the choice of text aren't as important as what we do with them. Mm -hmm. And I think that that kind of falls in line with that. So I very often, um, COVID's could cause a little bit of challenge. I haven't figured this out yet, but typically how I start off a literature class is that I bring in a list of texts that we can read and I kind of give them a nutshell version of these are what these texts, these are the, some of the concepts that these texts touch on. And then the students write down their top 10 choices. And then I take it home and I compile all that data and I make sure that at least one of their top three choices ends up on the syllabus that we're going to read for that, for the, you know, the semester um, and, and give them some kind of choice and, and investment in that as well. So, you know, it's, it's that kind of, that kind of model. But that being said, it not only is, is thinking processes and things like that, are they hard to measure um, in, in the ways that we're measuring, but they're also expensive. It's expensive because that, that kind of thing takes time. It's hard to teach a class of 40 students, you know, who, who may need a one-on-one, -on -one, you know, or, or do need some one-on-one -on -one time to explore these kind of things. Um, you just you just can't do it so it's budget budgets as well you know and this is you why think, you know oh go ahead Sorry. no go ahead oh i was just gonna say you know this is why if you look at what states or nations spend on education you know the the uh the success of those students in life i think very often follows that and not only that but crime rates and, and a number of other things as sure. well do you think uh the single greatest barrier to change in that arena is funding? Or do you think that there's anything, you know, is it a two-headed monster or is it just one giant dragon? 
I, I think it's about an 18 headed monster. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, you know, I, I think as a culture as well, we don't, um, we don't value learning as, as much as, you know, others, we live in this kind of Arthur Fonzarelli culture where it's cool not to go to class or it's cool not to, you know, learn uh, generally speaking. I never uh, understood that. And I moved to the United States in 11th grade, and I did not understand that. Mm -hmm. I I didn't know if growing up here would change that. But do you have any thoughts on that? Why is that the case? Did, did did you see that in in India as well? Did you say or don't? Oh no! In India, no. the the coolest kids were the ones who got straight A's. Yeah, I was well. I I did significantly better growing up in India than when I you know I think I peaked in tenth grade, and mm-hmm. my parents are probably not going to like me saying that, but <laughs> I did. I think up until sixth grade or seventh grade, I was ranked first in my entire school. And anytime, uh-huh. you know, uh, someone had to go to the principal's office or the headmistress's office to, to ask for something, it wasn't the person that spoke the clearest or the tallest student or the student that was dressed the smartest and had the crispest shirt and the, the shiniest shoes. It was always where's, you know, who's rank one in this class? Oh, mm. Anurag is. And all the other kids would know that that's the case as well. If someone was absent, they wouldn't go to their friend for notes. They would come to me because I was ranked first and therefore I take the best notes, which I most certainly didn't. (laughs) But it it was such a meritocracy that other parents would tell their kids to go be friends with the guy that was the nerdiest or the girl that was the nerdiest. Mm -hmm. So it was the exact opposite end of the system where, or the the opposite end of the spectrum where, uh, Truants were were considered a, a, you know, other students will look down upon you if you skip class. Uh, whereas when I came to the United States, that was the cool guy that you know he he doesn't care about anything and he's so nonchalant about coming to class and he's just going to go to the beach because it's Wednesday and it's nice out and he doesn't feel like coming to class. Mm-hmm. And do you have any thoughts on why that is the case? Is it I, just the fonts that made it cool? I, I don't know. I blame Arthur Fonzarelli. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I, I don't, I don't know why it's the case. I think there's something in, in, um, uh, adolescent psychology and I'm not a psychologist, you know, but it's, you know, that, that, um, you know, if I can't do, if, if I can't do well in school, then I can do other things that make me well-respected. And, and I don't know if it's some kind of primitive, you know, this person is good at athletics, so therefore they can run away from a saber-toothed tiger, so therefore I should graduate, gravitate toward them, you know, for, for mating purposes. I don't know if it goes back that far, I, you know, but I, I... That makes sense. It's, it's um, you know, it's... Uh, it, 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 it has always baffled me. And that's something I, you know, I've talked with my kids about as well. I, I tell them the, the, the joke we've always said in classes, I said, you know what, what people call the nerdy kid in 20 years, they call him boss, you know, and, and, and to, to, there's, there's some truth to that. Maybe not always, but there's some truth to that. And, and so, um, it, it's, it, it has always baffled me. It's always baffled me. Now I went to high school as a small high school. We had 600 kids in our high school. 
um, 180, I believe, in our graduating class because enrollment was on the decline then. But and I think only 110 of them actually graduated. Um, so so for me, high school was a little bit different in that, you know, everybody kind of knew everyone mm -hmm. kind, of, kind of thing. But um, um, I don't I don't know what what that is. I, I think that um, I don't know if this is psychology or sociology or, or social psychology, but, you know, very often the most confident people um, are the ones that people turn to for, you know, good, bad, or indifferent. They, they, they turn to those. And I think that there, there's some kind of at least projected confidence in the, you know, oh, screw school and screw the teacher and I'm not going to do this, you know, where, you know, to follow directions, to do your homework, to show up for class, um, to study that at some sort of obedience to the teacher or, or some sort of sub, subversive, not subversive, uh, subjective powerlessness about that. I, I don't, I don't know. Again, this is still too deep for this early in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, mm -hmm. on that note, I'll switch no. over to questions from uh, the previous interviewee. Okay. <laughs> These hopefully are a little bit lighter. Which superpower would you rather have? The ability to fly or the ability to become invisible and why? I I think for me there's while invisibility would be cool, but I think just to be ability to fly. I've always loved the sensation of flying. You know, at at some point when I was a kid I wanted to be an airline pilot. Um I still love, you know, V anything VR that that lets you fly, you know. We've been playing a lot of Eagle Flight lately, and and, and flying in in virtual reality. But um, um, just that feeling of, and I don't know if that's freedom. I don't know if it that's uh, you know, the way your stomach turns as is you know, as you fly. I'm not sure, but it's just an incredible, incredible feeling to me. Fair enough. What is a bill? or service or good that you resent paying or spending money on? Oh, wow. <laughs> um, <clears throat> oh, this is a good one. I, I, any kind of service related things is what I, I resent paying, paying money on. Um, things like, um, like an oil change now, mm -hmm. you know, which, you know, is relatively cheap. And then the price of a, of a quart of oil has gone up. So, you know, for only eight bucks more, somebody else does it. So I don't mind, you know, where in the past I'd always change my oil, but, um, you know, we had a couple trees that because of the last storm are leaning toward our house. And so we had somebody come out and cut those down. And part of me is like, you know, I have a chainsaw. I could have done it myself, but at the same time, I didn't want to be wrong about something like that, <laughs> sure. you know? And, and so, um, these kind of things are, are things that I, I resent, you know, things that I can do myself, but for some reason for time or convenience or whatever, I, I don't. Fair enough. If you could be quarantined with one fictional character, book, TV series, or a movie, anything really, who would it be and why? Oh, wow. Um, can I pick two or do I have to pick one? Yeah, sure. It's, oh, okay. The so, more, the merrier. I think Jay Gatsby from The Great Gatsby would be... Um, really? Really? 
would would be fascinating um he's such a flawed character and and that's actually people are always shocked to find out that that the great gatsby is my favorite book um because they're always like i would think it'd be something from twain and but it's not I, I love every time i go back and reread that it's a different book and i don't know if it's probably because i'm a different person um but i still notice things that i never have so i think jay gatsby you know for all of his flaws um i think would be great because i'm sure you know we've got you know We've got similar flaws, I suppose. <laughs> but I, I also think Tyrion Lannister from the Game of Thrones, I think, would be fantastic to to hang out with. And maybe not even Tyrion Lannister, maybe just P- Peter Dinklage, you know, might be, you know, but but the, the character that he portrays, you know, that very deep thinking, logical mind is fascinating to me. Very cool. Uh, second to last, well, third to last, rather. If you could come time if you could time travel would you rather go 200 years into the past or 200 years into the future oh um and obviously why i I, I don't know that i would be (laughs) be brave enough to go into the future (laughs) (laughs) i'm not sure there'd be anything there in 200 years um no uh honestly i think the 200 years into the past i think that um you know, history has always fascinated me, um, especially, the, you know, the history of architecture and, and things like that. So to go back and see, you know, 200 years is, you know, the 1720s. So we we start to see some of the, uh, the, the world expanding and, and you know, the, the architecture changing and, and, you know, the world changed for better or for worse, you know, some horrible things going on in the 1700s. Um, but um, I think just to see, see history. And I also think partly would be because I think that we, well, I know that we have a habit of, of, um, uh, of polishing our history, you know? So yeah, you know, we have these wonderful stories of Kings and Queens, but we forget about there's people working out in the fields and, and things like that. You know, it's, you know, um, you know, Dickensian or Victorian England sounds like a really cool place to be, but, you know, we, we forget that the life expectancy then was 45 years old and, sure. you know, the, that the death rate among children was so high. So um, that sounds like I want to see misery and I don't, but I would like to see it accurately as, you know, sure. rather than what, you know, what, what history, you know, has portrayed right twain calls history fluid prejudice i think that that's a nice way to summarize that <laughs> it is <laughs> uh, i i i'm going to regret asking this question and i was uh, a little sad to see it but um i have to speak about myself in, in third person anurag has asked you and his guests so many questions what question would you like to ask him and then there's a oh. winky face at the end of it so i i, I think i knew the person knew what they were doing yeah. Oh, I think so too. Yeah. Um, I have so many questions for you. I would love to, you, you should do like a self interview. I think one time where we can just send in a series of questions and, and you'll answer them. Cause it's not fair that we get to know so much about ourselves and so little about you, but, um, um, I would like to know what drives you. Like where, where your, your, 
because you're you're hands down the most intelligent person I know. I also Oof. know that you're you're humble as well, so that probably makes you uncomfortable. And and I'm glad to return that favor for you making me <laughs> uncomfortable with humility issues. But um, um, I mean, I just I I'm fascinated at how smart you are. I'm fascinated, you know, at you know listening to your podcast and how you how you word things so accurately and before i was on this particular podcast i always thought well he probably goes back and edits his own words or something he must because you know you're you're so precise but but you're not i've spoken with you in person as well so um you know somebody of 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 your brilliance somebody that that gets teaching the way you do somebody that gets relating to people and talking with them um I don't know anybody smarter and I don't know anybody who would have said, you know, we're going into COVID. Now's a great time for me to get to learn about the people, you know, who I work with. Right. I have this awesome mic, which I would be remiss if I didn't mention the the mic because I (laughs) always see people saying it. And I was looking forward to seeing that um, almost as much as looking forward to seeing you. But, um, but what, what drives you? What, where, where's that inner fire? Uh, I, I'll, I'll send you the PayPal payment for saying all that afterwards. <laughs> Thank you. I, and I, I prefer I, Bitcoin, right? right. <laughs> 200 no. years in the future is uncertain. So. <laughs> uh, a couple of things. Three things come to mind immediately. Uh, number one, I, I think that the praise is entirely undeserved. So thank you for, for thinking that. And I, I said the same thing to Mark as well, that if it comes across that, you know, there's preparation or any sort of thought that goes into this uh, endeavor, the podcast specifically, then um, cool. I, I've snowed over people. Um, and if you know anyone thinks that I'm intelligent or I'm the most intelligent person, then you know I don't want to be disrespectful to your significant other, but you might want to reevaluate the choices you've made if I'm the smartest person. Um, <laughs> I, I don't think that I am, um, but in terms of what drives me, uh, the first person to ask me that question was actually I was interviewing in grad school for an operations research position at Office Depot. I did not know that they have a headquarter uh, right up the street from FAU um, on military. Oh, I didn't know that either. I, it's a They make all the decisions for how many printers and how many chairs need to be at each store. Uh, It's a very math heavy office, I guess. Um, And probably one of the best interviews I've ever had. They they took me through this maze of offices. And one of the first questions was uh, go back to your car and then come back. And if you can, then you get to stay here and continue on with the interview, which was just amazing. I, I thought that that was a really cool uh, test instead of just, you know, sit down and start talking about math. Mm-hmm. And then they put me up with one of the senior engineers. I, I never got the, the, the internship, but it was one of the best experiences I've had. Um, and there was this very, very, very visibly pregnant lady, uh, who brought me to this empty room and said, how many basketballs could you fit in this room? And, um, being the idiot that I was, I said, are you in the room or not? Because <laughs> 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 I can fit a couple more basketballs where, where your belly is occupying space. And I, I, I don't know if that, she laughed 
she really, really laughed, but I, I don't know if that was what lost me the, <laughs> the internship. I, I'm hoping that that's what it was and not me being stupid. Uh, but the very last interview was with this HR type person and, and they asked me the same question. Um, the answer I gave and, and the answer I still give is, is fear of failure. Um, and, and I remember very clearly why I said that. When you grow up in a country like India, um, the only way to get out of your social strata, as high as it might be, the only way to be better is to be amazingly good at something. Mm. Now, you can either be the most amazing cricket player, which you know, in a country of a billion people, the Indian cricket team is only, I think, 15 people. So out of a billion people, you have to be the top 15 talent and everything has to go right in order for you to become one of the best in, in, the, in the country and as a result, the world. Um, I, I was a terrible cricket player. You know, everyone <laughs> plays cricket in India, but you always imagine that you're going to be the best, but you never are. Um, the, the odds are so stacked against you becoming really good at that that then you say, okay, well, what else am I good at? I'm good at school, so let me try to learn and, and let me spend energy on that. Um, and invariably that that's pretty much how my, my parents were brought up as well, that if you do well in school, you'll be able to get a better job. You'll get paid more money. And as a result, instead of living in the village where you grew up, you're able to make a better life for yourself and your family. When, when, you know, you can move out into the city and have, uh, your, your sons and daughters could go to better schools than you did. Um, I, I never thought that far out, but it, it was always a fear of, uh, not necessarily even disappointing my parents, but, um, although that was in there as well, but what drove me was that I don't have anything else to fall back on outside of what I think I'm really good at, which isn't much, but you know, some people might say, oh, I have an architecture background that I could fall upon, or I, I ran track and I could go back and teach that, or I have a real estate license. So if, if teaching doesn't work out for me, I can go do these other things. Uh, I think foolishly, perhaps, I've invested so much time and energy into this one thing, which I don't know if I even do well, uh, that the fear of failing at it and not having anything else to fall back upon it's it's like well you're already all in you might as well just keep going or that, that Churchill quote of uh, men were already in hell might as well keep marching I think mm. I butchered <laughs> it slightly so it, it's not to say that I'm in hell but if if there's this unidimensional thing that I think I'm good at and there's not really other things to to fall back on uh, um, you know I, I don't have an inheritance where I could just not do anything and live the rest of my life in luxury um, I, I'm not a sports player as it were i'm not lebron james um so yeah it's that and i i i think through that period of of liking the pain that comes with having to learn anything worth learning i i came to enjoy it and i came to embrace the the pain of of the learning process of uh, looking at a problem and not knowing how to solve it for 5 days and then eventually you know having that eureka moment and, and getting up in the middle of the night and writing things down, that is addictive. It, it's very easy to get addicted to that feeling of discovery 
even though it's a stupid discovery and someone else has already solved that problem, but the fact that I did it and I did it without the help of someone else holding my hand. Um, and I enjoy that feeling so much that I, I'm, I have it and I can tell other people that it's a great feeling, but I don't know how to get them to experience it for the first time themselves because the activation energy needed to struggle with something for a week is so high that if there's a better way to do that through inquiry-based learning, through project-based learning, through trying different things, uh, that, that's pretty much been the driving force behind trying different things and, 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 and seeing how is it that I can get across this love of problem solving to other students so that they themselves can see the beauty, not just in math, but if my car breaks down, how do I logically approach that proposition? What do I need to do first? Should I go read, uh, you know, if I'm in the middle of the road and the car breaks down, well, of course I'm going to call AAA or, you know, some sort of towing service. But if the car's at home, what should I try first? What should be the logical progression of, well, maybe the battery is dead if the car's not starting. Um, that, I, I think proclivity to want to think instead of, as you said, paying someone else to do the job, um, trying to figure out how to get other people to see things that way is what perhaps drives me. And then the fear of failure prevents me from taking a break yeah, because I don't know what else I would do if, if I failed at whatever I, I'm currently pursuing. Mm. And I think those qualities, I mean, you, I've heard you say this before that you don't know if you're a good professor or not. And I, I think that, you know, your desire for your students to succeed is what makes you that good professor and your willingness to kind of explore those, you know, how can I help them? You know, th those kind of things. I, I really think you don't give, you sure you're not Polish? Cause you're not giving yourself enough credit to, uh, <laughs> for, for, for this, because I, I think that, you know, I mean, it's, it, it, it is what makes you a good professor. I've heard students talk on my campus about you and, and, and highly for the, for the record. Their um, payments you know, are already clear. That, that's why. Um, but it, but it's, you know, I, I really do think, you know, that, that, you know, your willingness to make your students' brains hurt and to teach them to love that feeling, I think, uh, you know, it is really one of the, of the hallmarks of, of, you and, and the hallmarks of a good professor. I'll take the first one. I don't know if I can accept the second one yet, but thank you. Thank you for saying that. Uh, all right. The last question that I have is what would you title this podcast and your episode? <clears throat> um, so, you know, I've, I've been listening, right? Long time listener, long time first time here. Um, but, in, and so this is a question I've thought about for a long time. And, and I, as far as the episode goes, I was like, well, something will come up when we, when we talk. So I'm not going to worry about that one. And of course, I, I don't know, right? So I don't know if maybe, um, had, you know, what, what the hell am I doing here is probably the, the title I would pick. <laughs> not here in this podcast, but, you know, if I could go back, you know, to, you know, the, the dirty kid that, that, you know, that I was, you know, dirty, poor kid, like my mom used to put me in a, in a scrub bucket 
honest mm-hmm. to God, with wheels on it. And that's how she kept me babysat. So it would allow her to clean and stuff like that. And if I would get fussy, she would just push the bucket around and I would enjoy the movements. Maybe that's where the flying thing comes from. But, you know, so to go from there, you know, to being, you know, a, a professor very often feels weird and out of place as i mentioned so so maybe that's the title of your your episode feel free to veto that and call it something else (laughs) i I don't know um and i as for as far as the podcast i you know i i like the title as it is i i think it's really catchy but i you know I, i think something to do with real because i think that you know we work with 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 our our colleagues all of the people you know i've been friends you know for for many years with Tracy Siucci and I still learn things about her, you know, from your podcast. And that's true for, for a number of people that you've, you've interviewed. Um, and then other people I I've either, either met or have heard about, but I think what I love about the podcast is it makes them real, right? They're not just a name that shows up in our directory or a name that, you know, that, that we see at convocation or a colleague or a professor, but it's, you know, something, but, um, you know, the downside is that real echoes of like real housewives, you know, or something like that. So I don't, you know, real, real professors of Palm Beach State doesn't, <laughs> doesn't echo, it cheapens it. So I don't think that that's, that's a direction you want to go, but um, I'd say something to do with real. It, it, it feels, feels very real. And even this conversation, right, on a, on a laptop still feels real to me, you know, and, and I think that, that that has something to do with you. Uh, making this feel very comfortable but um you know it it does feel like one of our conversations after nfe or something like that thank you i i take that to be a compliment i don't know if it was intended as such but uh, absolutely yeah all right mr Klauser. uh thank you so much for spending i i just looked at the time and uh, I, whenever i'm having a good time i stop looking at it and uh, I apologize for taking more of it than I had requested, but thank you so much for being here. Uh, if, if you if you edit out my my rambling, it's a, it's a fifteen minute episode, so you, you should be. I, good. I dare not touch the rambling. That's the best part. <laughs> thank you so much. I've really enjoyed this. Take care. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Matt. Here's a clip from next week's episode. them or challenge them to uncover that implicit bias. I ask them to uncover the things that they think they know about people that they really don't know because they really never um, interacted with those people before. Um, I ask them to uncover where those biases come from because in order for an educator to be inclusive, they the work starts with them. Right. So once you can say, oh, I do have this bias, you can then say, I need to do these things in order to be the teacher I need to be for students from that group that will come into my classroom. Otherwise, I won't be able to provide an equitable education for them. Until next time, for another 84 times, take care.